The Cincinnati Reds have lost a longtime fixture in their clubhouse. I'm Steve Brown. And I'm Thomas Bradley. This is After the Score. Welcome to After the Score, 89.7's weekly look at sports. This week, we'll look back at the career of Orlando Pace, the all-time great offensive lineman. Learn this week he's going into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. We'll also share our thoughts on Johnny Football, Johnny Manziel. We've poked a lot of fun at him in the show, but his life appears to have taken a scary turn with an alleged domestic incident in Dallas. But first, normally when we talk about a professional sports team, it's about the players, maybe the coaches, maybe even the front office, but not the clubhouse manager. But Bernie Stowe wasn't your typical clubhouse guy. He managed the Reds clubhouse for 46 years, from before the Big Red Machine all the way through the 1990 world title till just two years ago. And Bernie Stowe died this week at the age of 80. Reds fans and players have countless stories to share. We'll hear some of those now with former Reds pitcher Tom Browning. Thanks for joining the show. Hey, it's glad to be here. So what do you remember most about Bernie Stowe? Oh, that uh, little smirk he used to carry around knowing that he had something on his mind about doing some sort of prank or, uh, you know, he just had a way of uh, enlightening your day. Awesome guy to be around. But, I mean, he did a lot of pranks and he had some things that he did, you know, to just to kind of lighten the day. I mean, he was clubhouse manager. What were some of your favorite or most memorable pranks that, that he did around the clubhouse? Well, he had this box called the mongoose. You know, he had a, and he acted like he had a real live mongoose in there, and he had it spring-loaded with a piece of a tail of chopped down as a squirrel. It might have been a mongoose tail for all I know. Uh, but he used to rip out there and, say, you know, and he'd, and he'd hit the cage. He'd act like the thing was getting really vicious, and, and he'd get a lot of guys come around, and then he hit that spring, and it popped that tail off out in the out, and uh, and them guys would go scattering. It was it was awesome. He sounds like a funny guy. I, I, I saw a quote from Johnny Bench that, that really was pretty powerful. He said that Stowe uh, was, quote, a man that raised us, in a sense. He said he was the constant in the turmoil, a friend who waited on us hand and foot. So he he was a, a friend in the, in the sense that you're saying he was quite a jokester, but he was also somewhat of a father figure, especially to the younger players. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He, he reared a lot of us, I suppose. He kind of helped a few of us cut our teeth, but uh, he was. He was a friend. He was a teammate. Uh, he was a father figure. He was a guy that, uh, you know, if you needed absolutely anything or anything going on in your life that needed uh, some sort of help, he was there. He went to him and he felt we found a solution. And uh, yeah, he was great at that, but he was. I, I think that's put really quite fairly that he was a father figure on any team you you have obviously the players and then the manager you had your pitching coaches the bullpen coach that whole ordeal but I guess not a lot of people know about the clubhouse manager can you explain exactly what Stowe's role was on the team day to day uh absolutely he was uh uh, he made sure all the luggage got put on the plane. He made sure all the luggage got taken off the plane. He made sure all the luggage got to the hotel. Uh, then he dropped off. Once he dropped all that off, then he went to the ballpark and made sure every bag was unloaded, made sure everybody's locker was unpacked. Uh, they may have waited till the next day, but uh, he was certainly the first guy to go there every day, probably the last guy to leave the ballpark. But uh, he put, had to pack extra helmets, gloves, 
you name it, you know, uniforms, whatever. He had to, you know, make sure all that stuff was where it was supposed to be. Uh, he lined up, you know, dinner every night for us at home. Uh, you know, he just, and then the traveling secretary and him probably coincided with doing a lot of the uh, behind the scenes work, I'm sure, like getting uniforms, making sure the uniforms got washed on the road and, and back properly and nothing was, you know, done wrongly or whatever. So, uh, yeah, he did everything that you don't see. Yeah, kind of an un- kind of an unsung hero. You you don't hear much about the clubhouse manager, but without him, it sounds like you're not really playing baseball. Well, exactly. I mean, if anything was wrong, if there was something missing or something needed, Bernie was the first guy everybody went to. You know, and then Izzy was taken care of right there too, as well. So. Bernie reportedly had some strong words for Sparky Anderson when he first came to Cincinnati in 1970. He said, let's get one thing straight. I was here before you got here, and I'll be here long after you're gone, so don't give me any crap. Is that the kind of attitude that that Bernie kind of commanded in the clubhouse? Uh, I'm not sure that was said without a little smirk on his face. Mm -hmm. Because Bernie was very light. I never saw Bernie get mad. I never saw anybody or heard anybody say a bad word against Bernie Stowe. You know, and Bernie was a lighthearted guy. Him and Nussie, you know, in my generation, uh, they, they were two peas in a pod. They hung around together. They let me go back there and eat liverwurst and onions because nobody else would eat it, but, uh, and drink their beer back in, you know, in Bernie's, Bernie's office, back to where the washing machines were. But um, I'm not sure he said that with that and, you know, being so yeah. with a stern voice, but I, I can see Bernie saying it. Even if he didn't say it in that way, do clubhouse managers have a lot of pull with ownership? You know what I mean? Could they go to ownership and say, hey, I'm having a, pr- a problem with this guy, with this player, and then ownership might side with, with the clubhouse guy? Uh, you know, back then, we didn't have that much. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't that much necessary. Uh, we Bernie probably only had a couple helpers back then. You know, now they got a stable full, stable full of kids. Um and, and to be honest, I remember hearing stories about the general manager, Bob Housem, asking permission to come down into the clubhouse. You know, I mean, I think they felt that was a, a reverence uh, of, of the players um, or just a place, you know, the He-Man Woman Haters Club kind of thing. And I don't think the owners felt they were part of it, even though they had every right to go down there and the general manager for that matter. But back then, you know, they kind of let the players have, have it. Uh, that was their own little place, their own little clubhouse. And, uh, you know, everybody else was, you know, was invited, I guess. But, uh, you know, again, Bernie Bernie probably didn't have any problem getting anything done. I'm sure he had a budget, and if I recall, I think they had some budget disputes every now and then with Marge, uh, but usually pretty much dealt with right away. Uh, but Bernie, Bernie was the guy. I mean, everybody, you know. Everybody that came in that uh, came into work for Bernie was. Uh, was handpicked by Bernie, you know, and then he got all, you know, a lot of more elder kids and St. X kids, whatever, but he had a good, he always had a good group of kids. Uh, but you know, it was Bernie's clubhouse and things were done a certain way. Things were packed a certain way. Uh, you know, but he, he had a system. He'd been there forever. So. Did, did Bernie or any of the other clubhouse guys treat rookies or, or first year utility players differently than star players? Maybe, did he treat you differently after you threw your perfect game than when you were first in Cincinnati? Was there any kind of um, rhyme or reason to it? Uh, Bernie's job, I think, in, in Bernie's eyes, was to make sure that them young kids, us young kids, when we were coming up, 
you know, didn't get full of ourselves, kept us grounded, uh, but also, you know, was there to first get a patch on the back and say, hey, you're all right, you know, kind of thing. Uh, they did try to ride rookies because that's what a lot of guys did. Uh, but once you got to know them, uh, there was a lot of jousting back and forth, and mo- all of it was in fun. I mean, if I had a bad day, which I had many, uh, they didn't mind. Or, you know, they're, in fact, their sons, Mark and Rick, were the first ones to say, man, you were terrible or something like that. Uh, but but Bernie, you know, when he found the opportunity to, to throw his digs in, in in a joking manner, and then it was always in a joking manner, uh, he would do it. But, you know, he was just – it said he just made that clubhouse, you know, like a second home. The Cincinnati Reds are mourning the loss of longtime clubhouse manager Bernie Stowe. He joined the club as a bat boy at the age of 12 in 1947. He stayed with the club for 68 years, and he died this week. Former Reds pitcher Tom Browning, thanks for sharing all your stories. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. There's been a lot of backlash lately to an idea to build a new sports facility in Columbus that would attract a lot of events and teams, including the Cleveland Browns. And getting the Cleveland Browns training facility to Columbus was not the controversial part. Many teams have their training facilities in other cities. The the controversial part was how they were going to pay for it. A development firm was asking state officials for $5 million in state money to build the facility on or near Ohio State's campus. The local development agency Columbus Partnership this week backed off its request for state money, but the Browns say they still want the facility. So who knows, maybe that request for public money will still come back again. Browns owner Jimmy Haslam wants the facility, so it's probably getting built. And I think Thomas knows how I feel about this. I hate the idea of publicly funded stadiums, publicly funded anything, really, when it comes to sports. Well, Nationwide Arena turned out to be, well, it's still functioning, but it is a huge yeah, the, pain. The city for, can't make the rent for payments. Columbus. They, they cannot. They cannot make the mortgage on Nationwide Arena. They had to fund an entire casino just to help make up for some of the problems with Nationwide Arena. But that's just how it goes in the NFL these days. We talked a couple months ago about the new stadium proposal out in uh, in Los Angeles where mm-hmm. the Rams are now moving to L.A. That's going to be a publicly funded stadium. It, owners treat NFL teams and NFL options and these pro sports options as a treat for the taxpayers and think that they should have to pay them whereas they get all the revenue as owners. Yeah, a lot of Cleveland fans, uh, I'm a Cleveland fan, uh, full disclosure here, a lot of Cleveland fans were worried about the Browns moving training camp to Columbus uh, for obvious reasons. The city lost its team to Baltimore in the 1990s, so they're really hesitant about any of this. I think if Jimmy Haslam wants to move training camp to Columbus, that's his prerogative. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that on its face, but Asking for public money when you're a billionaire who's had some pretty serious allegations about him about rebate fraud with the federal government. I'm not sure that the proper form is going to the state government and asking for $5 million. I think the issue comes here that the three major populations in Ohio, Cincinnati, Cleveland, and Columbus, make up the majority of state taxpayers. This this $5 million would come from everyone across the state of Ohio. So now you have 
close to a third of it coming from residents of Cincinnati paying for the Browns to move their facility, a third of it coming from Cleveland, where residents are paying for their facility to leave Berea, and then a third coming from Columbus. So I think the argument there is that if Columbus Browns fans really want them to come to Columbus, and if the ownership really wants them to come to Columbus, the money should come from those two sources and not elsewhere. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And maybe even worse is people in in Marietta or in Dark County in Western Ohio, people who might not even care about the NFL. You know, can make you know you can make a case that the people in Cincinnati and in Cleveland at least have some emotional investment in the NFL, and so building a, a nice new stadium wherever it is, might be good for the Browns, might be good for, for training camp, might be a, a good economic thing for the Browns. But who cares? I mean, if you if you live in, in Ashtabula, I guess that's near Cleveland, but if you, if you live in, in Toledo, this is just a complete waste of state money. If we really want to look at all the things that people are taxed on in the state of Ohio and see whether they care for it or not, we could have a much longer discussion on it. But as it stands right now, the partnership, Columbus uh, partnership, has backed away from the request. So we shouldn't be seeing any of this anytime soon. And staying with the Browns, we're now going to talk about the life of Johnny Manziel. And it's taken another bizarre turn. Yeah, the former Heisman Trophy winner, he's always been anything short of boring. He's Johnny Football. He does the money signs with his hands. He came into the league saying he wanted to wreck the NFL. He's been suspended for partying. And things took a much more serious turn in Texas late last month. And details emerged earlier this week about a fight where Johnny Manziel and his ex-girlfriend allegedly got into an altercation where he hit her so hard that she lost hearing in one of her ears. He then drug her by her hair back into the car where they were driving. Eventually, she made it back to her apartment, and somehow the situation did end peacefully, all, all except for what I've mentioned. Yeah, a big caveat here. These are allegations from her in an affidavit. She was granted a protection order from Manziel. He's not allowed to come near her for two years. So there, 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 there's evidently some weight to these allegations, or at least prosecutors or police think they have some validity. The Browns could not get away from Manziel fast enough, which kudos to them for actually making a smart decision with a player. Get the guy out of town. Get away from him. Before even the news cycle of the allegations died down, more things popped up with Johnny Manziel. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone claimed, and the Browns have disputed it, that the Browns placed Johnny Manziel on concussion protocol to hide the fact that he showed up to a practice completely hungover. The accusation from a, a reporter with the NFL Network said the Browns lied. And then he backed off that somewhat and said that Manziel was hungover at a meeting the Wednesday before he was suspended for the final game. So the, you can make the connection there if you want. The Browns are insisting that he was in the concussion protocol because he appeared to have a concussion. An independent neurologist said that he should be in the concussion protocol. But Johnny Benzel has just He's left the yard. I mean, I, I, the guy appears mentally ill this, at this point or at least has a serious addiction problem. So I don't want to make light of that. But he, he's, he's beyond the point of return, at least for the Browns. At this point, does the NFL step in and start to try to get him help? Oh, if, the, if they were sincere about any of the Ray Rice stuff they do. Yeah, I, I, think, I think he really does need some honest-to-goodness help. Forget his future in the NFL right now. Put that aside. Look at his future as a, as a human being, as a contributing member of this society. I, I feel like he needs help right away. We've, we've been talking about Manziel since he got drafted by the Browns, and Steve's always— kind of given him a benefit. I've given him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I've been a little higher on his talent than you have. I never thought he was a good guy necessarily. I thought 
that he could make it as a starter in the NFL if if he tried. I guess I don't know. I I thought he had more talent than you always thought, but and, and it wasn't even his talent I was knocking. I was always knocking the intangibles that maybe he yeah. didn't give enough effort or there wasn't something quite right. And I I think now we're seeing that you know that's taking precedent. I, yeah. I, I think I would I, I would say that I don't think anybody knew the extent oh, of his issues. I absolutely did not. Uh, I was I thought it was much lighter than what we're learning right now. Right, we just thought he was an immature party boy. That's what I that's what I thought anyway. I thought, I thought maybe he wouldn't read the playbook or or have the playbook down, and that's why I didn't think he'd be a good NFL starter. Yeah, but, but you, this is beyond that. You do raise interesting points about the NFL when all when all the Ray Rice stuff happened, when the the former running back for the Baltimore Ravens punched his then fiance in an elevator and knocked her out cold, and then you see all these players in the No More campaign talking about an end to domestic violence. If the NFL isn't serious with Johnny Manziel, then they are just transparent and just shills. They're just – they're terrible. Moving on to a lighter subject now. We're going to talk about the Ohio State men's basketball team. They've been up and down all season, a complete roller coaster. They just beat Northwestern after two straight losses. They're currently 15-10 and 10 and 7-5 and 5 in the conference with just six games left. Yeah, they are. And teams in the conference as good as the Big Ten usually need about 20 wins to get into the tournament. You could see 18 maybe if it's a really good year for the Big Ten. The Buckeyes, 15 wins now. They have six games left. It's not looking very good at this point. It's a tough schedule going down the stretch. I saw Bill Landis from Cleveland Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com write that the Ohio State Buckeyes have about a 20% chance right now to make the tournament. And I think that's a little generous. I'm not sure if that's generous. I don't know. Like I said, they need to get at least three, probably four or five wins out of the last six, and three of those games are against top ten teams, two against Michigan State and one against Iowa. So let's say they, they win 50% of them. Let's say, so they, say go they, they get 18 wins. 18 wins. How far do they have to go in the Big Ten tournament to get an at-large bid? Well, if they win one, even two of those games over Michigan State or Iowa, and then they win another one, they have a decent case. At that point, they have a really quality conference win over Iowa or Michigan State, and they have a great win over Kentucky. I, I don't know. It would depend on a lot of other things going on around yeah. college basketball. Ohio State will be one of those teams that's watching those bubble yeah. busters where those small tournaments where only one team gets in and there's a favorite. If they happen to lose their conference tournament and another at-large takes it, there's a lot of teams Ohio State probably will be paying attention to on the first weekend in March. When you talk about all-time great offensive linemen at Ohio State, there are two people who stand out, John Hicks and Orlando Pace. Pace is the only two-time winner of the Lombardi Award that's given to the best lineman or linebacker in college football. He also had a really great nickname. The Pancake Man. He was known for pancaking opposing players, knocking them flat on their back like a pancake. This week, he learned he's going to Canton in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. For more on Pace's great career at Ohio State and equally great career in the NFL, we're joined now by Columbus Dispatch reporter Tim May. Uh, Tim, what made Orlando Pace so great? Why did he stand out above his peers so much? Well, on top of everything else, he's God-given, he's God-given gifts, which included size, speed, uh, strength, 
uh, he had a relentlessness about him, and by that I mean he was always working to get better from from day one. And he showed up at Ohio State way back when, and uh, you know, ready to play, physically ready to play, but also mentally ready to play because playing the offensive line uh, in, at any major level of football, you, you've got you got to have a toughness about you. You've also got to have a, a and that includes mental toughness. And he was that way. He was a kind of kept his mouth shut and went about his business. And he was sort of the quiet giant. And that's what impressed me more than anything else. He's kind of stepped in and started from day one and, and picked up from there. And I've always told people, you know, the, the, the easy thing is to, is to say that, you know, guys were born with certain gifts. That's why they're good. No, that's not the case at all. I mean, Eddie George was born with certain gifts. But the reason he became a Heisman Trophy winner is because he worked his rear end off. And it was the same with Orlando Pace. He wanted to be, he wanted to be the best offensive lineman in football, and uh, I think he achieved that. I, I still, he is the template as far as I'm concerned. Of uh, if you want to ha- see how to become the best in anything, watch what Orlando Pace did. Because yes, he had certain inalienable rights when he was born, and he was going to be pretty pretty good at something. But then he worked on it, and uh, and the result is. As Kirk Barton says, you know, former offensive lineman at Ohio State, he goes, he gets tired when, when he reads or sees someone say, well, the next Orlando Pace is going to be, he goes, there probably won't be another Orlando Pace. There's a handful of positions on the football field that are the glamour positions, quarterback, running back, wide receiver, maybe linebacker on the defensive side of the ball. Offensive line's not that glamour position, but Orlando Pace kind of made it exciting to watch him play. He got the nickname Pancake Man at Ohio State with his ability to just destroy defensive linemen. Talk about the impact he had on the, the team success in the, in the 90s. Well, he was the best at his, at his position, number one. Number two... I would disagree with you a little bit. There was a whole book written about uh, the blind side. Uh, Michael Orr, the left tackle, who ended up starting this year for the Carolina Panthers at left at left tackle. But when he was at uh, Mississippi, you know the way he was recruited, et cetera. But but my point is, I mean, the, the left tackle in football has always been since the passing game was invented has always been one of the those key those key components to having a great football team, especially in the National Football League, and. Uh, Orlando Pace is one of those few guys who's come along who's totally fit fit what you want in that in that kind of fellow. And you're right, man. He uh, I use the word relentless, and the pancakes were the were the product of that relentlessness by Orlando Pace. He always wanted to put the man he was blocking not only on the ground but on his back on the ground. <laughs> and uh, you know, I forgot the number of pancakes he had, but it was uh, it would have made IHOP blush. A lot of people forget, or I guess we take, uh, just take it for granted, that he was a Heisman Trophy finalist in 1996. Yeah. He was fourth place in the Heisman. Yeah, and, uh, you know, who who knows another day? And John Hicks, of course, finished second in that race, and those are probably the, the two highest finishing offensive linemen in history, especially from one school. But, yeah, I mean, he just – the thing about Orlando Pace was he had a way of getting into the highlight video because – he was never stopping. You know, at the end of a play, he'd, he'd be in the highlight because uh, there he was leading Joe Montgomery down the field at Iowa way back when. That's one of the one of the great moments in uh, in offensive lineman history, uh, uh, leading on that long run down the field. And uh, you know, that's just the way Orlando Pace played all the way to the whistle. And he was always looking for somebody else to to block or maybe another pancake to put on the stack. 
seven Pro Bowls, one Super Bowl, three first-team All-Pros. His NFL career was stacked. Was there ever any doubt he was going to get this Hall of Fame inductee? Not in my mind. I thought it was a joke that he didn't get. He wasn't a first ballot Hall of Famer because I thought he was that good. I thought he stood out among his peers, even at the professional level. I mean, he didn't win a help help St. Louis win a Super Bowl, and uh, he was Kurt Warner's. Uh, he was Kurt Warner's uh, blind side uh, protector. And no, I mean I. I don't think there was any doubt he was going to end up in Canton, and I know he's pretty fired about being in. I remember when he was when he got inducted in the Ohio State Hall of Fame and the uh, College Football Hall of Fame. He was pretty fired up about that. I can't imagine uh, what he's feeling right now because he's he's going to be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in his home state. You know what? A uh, eighty hundred miles from where he grew up, he's got to be pretty fired up. My brother used to work at the old Larkins facility on Ohio State's campus. And he would always play basketball with the guys. My brother was a very accomplished basketball player. He said Orlando Pace was by far the best player he ever played in person. He was a great basketball player. He probably could have played at Ohio State, maybe even gone on to play professionally. Well, let's don't get carried away. I, I don't. I don't think but, I am. I, maybe I am. But, I don't. My brother was no, very. No, no. Yeah. I'm, I'm. 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 I'm not knocking your brother's. Uh, your brother's talent. Uh, uh, sure. Ability to spot talent. Sure. But he's a. Orlando Pace was a big man with quick feet and really good hands. I mean, I could see him. Uh, I could see him. He could have been a great factor on the, uh, at least in college basketball. But uh, the main thing is he's a space eater. And those guys, you know, number one, with great athletic ability, and number two, the uh, inability to move around a guy like that. You've got to, you know, go halfway around the world to get from uh, one, one side of him to the other. Yeah, I, I could see him holding his own. But. I'm not sure. I'm not sure he would have taken a team to the NBA Finals on his basketball talent alone. He might have had to drop a, a few pounds. Three hundred and twenty-five pounds might be a little big for know, the man. hard foot. Even I'm not guarding even, him. I'll tell you that I'm not guarding him. Even today, even today, he looks like he's in shape. He looks like he could play football. I mean, the thing about him, I mean, he was he was that classic V shape. You know, you never saw Orlando Pace as big and fat ever. We've been talking about Orlando Pace, recently named to Canton, the Pro Football Hall of Fame. We've been talking with Tim May of the Columbus Dispatch. And that will do it for this week's edition of After the Score. You can hear a full archive of all of our shows we've ever done on the WOSU Public Media mobile app or in iTunes. You can also send us a shout-out on Twitter at After the Score. Until next week, I'm Steve Brown. And I'm Thomas Bradley.